bringing you our latest series on navigating the energy transition, a podcast series where RBC Capital Markets experts and guest speakers share their insights on the latest trends and opportunities in energy transition. Good afternoon and good morning to everyone and thanks for joining the session today. Um, my name is John Musk and I head up the Utilities and Renewables Research Team for RBC in London. Uh, and today we're hosting the 11th session in RBC's series of Navigating the Energy Transition. Uh, and we're pleased to be relaunching today after a short hiatus over the summer. Um, today we're going to look at how grids uh, may need to adapt to become more dynamic uh, as we move to increased renewables penetration uh, and as we see shifts in power demand from the electrification of transport and heat. Uh, given some of the volatility we've seen in renewables output in Europe uh, and the volatility in power prices in recent months, this is hopefully a, a pertinent time to be addressing this subject. Um, I am hosting the session today with my colleague Shelby Tucker, who leads the US uh, Power and Utility Research Team for RBC. And I'll hand over to Shelby now to introduce today's panelists. Great. Thank you, John. And uh, good morning uh, from New York City to everyone. And thanks again for joining us today. Um, we have three speakers today uh, who each will, will give their unique perspectives on what is needed to ensure power grids are adapting to the requirements of the energy trans transition. Uh, first, we have uh, Liam Ryan, who is the Chief Innovation and Planning Officer at AirGrid. Uh, which is the owner and operator of the High Voltage Transmission Network in Ireland. Um, we have Tim Mortlock, uh, who is the chief, uh, uh, off, uh, sorry, chief Operating Officer at SMS PLC, uh, who should be able to provide insights on the role of both smart meters and batteries in grid management. And last but not least, uh, we have Felix uh, Chalkambich, who is the uh, head of commission projects for Western Europe for Aurora Energy Resor uh, Research, uh, who can pr provide insights on the challenges facing grids across Europe. Um, given the head start that Europe has in the energy transition movement, we hope that some of these comments you will hear from our presenters will also instruct uh, investors on the direction that the North American utilities uh, may take over time. Um, I also want to make sure that uh, this, this session is as interactive as possible. Uh, so if you do have any questions, feel, uh, please feel uh, free to submit them online through the system and John or I will try to get them to as many as, as possible. Back to you, John. Yes, thanks, Shelby. Um, so yeah, ahead of uh, some questions hopefully coming in from, from the audience, um, maybe I can start the session with a question for, for Liam. Um, I think in many ways, Ireland is a, is a little bit of a, a microcosm of what is going on elsewhere in Europe, uh, one of the highest renewable penetration rates uh, already in the world. So um, perhaps you can just set the scene in terms of the challenges uh, that's presented to you and the initiatives that are being taken in Ireland already. Uh, thanks, a minute, John, for the invite here today, and um, and and thanks for for the the question as well. And, and good afternoon, and, go, and good morning, and good evening to everybody as well. Uh, so absolutely, um, you know, Ireland. We're actually at, you know. Last year, 43% on average of our electricity came from renewable sources, which meant at times we were operating the power system where 70% of our instantaneous electricity came from renewable sources. And in Ireland, that's mainly non-synchronous types of generation like solar 
and wind onto system. And that's that's no easy achievement, noting that we have very limited interconnection between Ireland and the rest of Europe. But we didn't do it on our own. It's not AirGrid has done this. It is the Irish ecosystem that's really delivered. And uh, what I mean by that is going, the conventional generators, the the new technologies coming on the system, the renewable generation folks all working collaboratively together to solve the challenges that we actually had. And some of the challenges that we actually had over the last 10 years were mainly technical. So we were looking at the technical challenges around how we'd operate the system with very little inertia on the system how we'd operate the system with new services that we hadn't even thought about in the past. What tools would we need to do for forecasting and also for um, predicting what's going to actually happen on the actual system in real time? And, and then also making sure that the right investments were being made at, at the right time around what we're doing uh, and making sure that that investment proposition is there while making sure that Ireland remains reasonably competitive as we go through that, that transition uh, period and what we're actually doing. But really the, 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 the key thing was that as a collective ecosystem, we all came together to solve the, the problems that, that we actually needed around it. Like some of the key challenges that we're still working our way through is looking at social acceptance of infrastructure. That's one of the key challenges that, and we're changing our approach about how we're, we're looking at, at infrastructure into the next period in time. And we're sharing all these learnings with, with our colleagues across Europe so that as we start to get more integration of, of wind and solar across Europe, that the challenges we found in Ireland are, are, are being shared across the rest of, of Europe and the rest of the world is what we're trying to do as well. But uh, the key thing I, I would leave you with is that for seven, for 12 consecutive days in February this year, we operated a power system where 70% of our electricity came from renewable sources, uh, which is a, a huge achievement uh, over that, those number of consecutive days. Great. Thanks, Liam. Um, and maybe bringing bringing Tim into the equation. Uh, Liam just talked around it. It wasn't just down to, to AirGrid to, to manage this. It's uh, broader than that. So um, the core of your business at SMS is uh, installing and, and managing and operating smart meters. Um, what role do you see smart meters having in helping the consumer to perhaps change the way they consume energy to, to help uh, integrate more renewables into the grid and you know, how do you or how do you or your customers use the data from those smart meters to uh, advise on consumption for for consumers and and larger users yeah thanks john and, and good afternoon and good morning uh, everybody um well look, you know smart meters have uh, local communications built into them which means that they can provide real-time energy consumption and, and price information for the matter to, to in-home devices, things like in-home displays, uh, apps, and so on. They empower consumers by providing immediate visibility over their energy usage and, and the cost of that usage. And when we install smart meters, we actually provide energy efficiency advice to people on how to benefit from that data in terms of their own, their own behavior uh, within the home. But really, whilst that sort of agenda has been uh, unhelpfully, in my view, some of the the, the advertisers sort of campaigns around smart meters. That is not the fundamental purpose of smart meters, which is actually to to uh, to completely uh, sort of enable a transformative approach to the use of energy. Really, around two things for me. So, firstly, smart meters measure both the import and export of energy from the home, 
So that sort of enables a much more distributed energy system with local renewable generation and storage, including vehicle to grid uh, from electric vehicles in, in the future as well, uh, meaning that they can play the, the home and the building can play an active part in balancing generation and demand on the grid. And, um, and secondly, by and, and most critically for me, actually, by recording when energy is used, smart meters enable time of use tariffs and encourage and reward consumer behavior to shift demand away from those times of greatest constraint on the grid. Now, this is uh, you know, critical from a national perspective when you, in terms of balancing generation and demand. Um, when you, you know, you could sort of one of the first things I learned years ago when I was sort of getting into the energy market was that you know, domestic homes uh, were designed, the local low voltage networks that supply all our homes were designed around sort of an average of one and a half kilowatts of usage per home. Uh, but when an instantaneous peak, each home could could use anywhere up to sort of 14 kilowatts. So, with increasing peak demand from electric vehicles and and the use of electricity for heating, it's critical that we enable consumers to use energy in a completely different way. Uh, and whilst in my view a lot of that will be automated in the future, for example, in terms of vehicles charging overnight or batteries exporting power back to the grid, um, smart meters enable consumers to benefit from that change in the time that they actually use energy or, or export it back to the grid. Um, that's why the, the market in the UK is moving towards what's called half-hourly settlement, which is uh, where the whole system will actually reflect the, the, the actual generation transmission and distribution uh, revenue and cost at different times of day, enabling a much smarter energy system. And that we also use the same data from smart meters, which is, you know, we collect remotely uh, to provide consumers and businesses with visibility and control over their energy usage. We provide web portals that allow them to, to get visibility of that and to control and, and monitor and target reductions in their energy usage as well. But it really is that it's that change in the way that people are allowed to use any and be charged for energy, uh, uh, which is critical from my perspective. Tim, you actually made a number of references on, on, on battery. Uh, could you maybe talk about SMS's plans for battery storage in the in the UK? Yeah, well, we've been developing a pipeline of um, over 470 megawatts of grid-scale battery storage in the UK. Uh, and to put that in perspective, National Grid uh, have forecast a requirement for 30 gigawatts of energy storage by 2050 and over 10 gigawatts by 2030. Uh, and there's currently less than five gigawatts of storage on the network, uh, including things like you know, pumped hydro solutions historically. And that, that really has been driven by the increasing intermittent renewable generation that's coming onto the grid and which is expected to come onto the grid to drive towards net zero. You know, we were just hearing about that over in Ireland and, and, and uh, same in the UK, really. And batteries can charge and discharge power almost instantly and therefore deliver a critical role in, in a decentralized energy system, providing stability, security of supply and a level of flexibility that, um, that you know, we, we absolutely need in order to be able to decarbonize the energy network. So yeah, as I said, we've got uh, a pipeline of initial, uh, initially 470 megawatts of projects at, at grid scale, so connected to the, the you know, 132 kV type uh, energy system. And really we see that as, as just the start. And, and what that enables us to do is to provide fast and flexible responses to balance the national grid. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think you know, I, I've seen figures around uh, in the UK that, that there is already between 15 gigawatts and 20 gigawatts of battery storage in development. Uh, but I, I would sort of counsel that I suspect quite a lot of that will fall by the wayside at some point in terms of, uh, you know, either the cost of those specific projects to develop or, or critically the ability to actually get the connection to the grid at that level to be able to, to, be able to deliver them. But 
Um, we see grid batteries as a critical part of the energy transition, uh, and we're intent on being a, a very large player in that space. Got it. Thanks, Tim. Uh, Felix, maybe uh, dwelling a little bit more into into batteries, um, and just I'm going to throw a few questions here. Um, you know, is is there a uh, um, a, a a battery storage of choice, um, meaning the one that's most uh, applicable for the grid as, as it relates to duration, output, flexibility, uh, and if you look at the different types of batteries, um, what are the uh, the cost profiles per choice? And then the last one I'll just lump in, in into a, a broader question is outside of batteries, hmm. what other yes. technologies, improvements are needed to help with grid flexibility and balancing? Yeah, sure, of, sure. I think, um, for you, Felix. Yeah, a few, a few questions to, to me. Uh, so to your first question, is, is there a battery of choice? I think at the moment, lithium ion is the main battery of choice, not not necessarily because it's what the grid needs, but it's where the technology has brought us. So lithium ion has been driven a lot by the transportation industry. And in a sense, a side effect of all those EVs is that there's lots of cost improvements in lithium ion. And, and hence, the, the utility side of you know, the, the, the power sector has been able to reap those rewards. So is it the, the, the choice, um, the technolo technology of choice? Um, might, maybe may not be it just is there it's there whereas there are other alternative technologies that are perhaps potentially more um, longer duration or or, or higher uh, less degradation so longer lifespan all these other technologies don't necessarily have the the same push in the costs um, so that sort of leads on to sort of your, your second question of what other technologies are are, are, are out there um, so um, no, there are variations um, on on lithium ion. So, so I think you no, know, it's slightly different metals, perhaps, and and um, but I, I wouldn't see that as significantly different technologies. Just incremental improvements. The the big shifts are, I think, that that I would look out for in terms of battery technology is something like um, vanadium flow technology, which has the capacity to have longer duration and um, less degradation. Um, but still, we're st still talking about the sort of battery-like characteristics, which is, which is, I think, a, um, a relatively limited duration. What the systems need, and we're talking about, you know, as as, as with Liam's example of Ireland with very high renewable penetration, I think what the system is is missing. It's not only battery technology, <clears throat> but longer duration something and we don't have a have a sort of solution just yet of what that is it may be a storage technology but that longer duration something could also be hydrogen carbon capture and storage there, there isn't currently a technology that can support i guess in in the the german technical term the dunkelflaute period where you have uh, essentially a uh, two three week period window when you don't have any wind generation, then, then what's there? Batteries aren't the solution. So you do need that zero carbon or low carbon solution for the two, three week gap in, in wind wind production. Yeah, and I, I would echo that, that, Felix, as well, is that from a system operator perspective, where we see from an Ireland perspective with high percentage of renewables on the system, we see batteries are really good at giving us fast frequency response, giving us the service in the short duration timeframes. 
And again, we see that for peak shaving to help us with, with peak management, the, the four to six hour batteries will help in relation to that. But to manage the Duncan flouter is a real challenge. And I think you know, where we're looking at, the hydrogen is part of the solution. And I think it's also evolving the current technologies so that they're hydrogen ready as well into the future. So we get that blend between the short, medium and longer term uh, solutions where those technologies will be running possibly during the intermittency periods um, and and benefiting from the low prices at time and and the high prices when there's a shortage and making sure that that arbitrage is, is very clearly utilized as well with also with the right um supporting um you know system uh, system services being put in place by system operators to drive that incentive so i would fully agree with what you've actually said in relation to the, the flexibility element and and the technology will need to evolve to to keep meeting the needs that we actually have i would just add another voice to all of that as well the battery storage lithium-ion battery storage is certainly where the you know the need is right now but there is going to be a need in the longer term for long duration storage to, to supplement that and to support it uh, and that that's just a fact and, and as i think it's already been said the technologies we, we probably don't quite know where so most solutions going to come from is it hydrogen is it compressed air for example and things like that but but there is certainly a requirement that's got to be addressed uh, for longer duration storage uh, alongside that short-term lithium-ion type response and, and i think Tim, and, just and i to, guess to where make... oh please no go ahead go ahead felix yeah and no, i think that there is a risk um and and taking sort of a few european examples like like in germany where um, there's a big push to renewable energy and um, there's no no solution for that that complements for new renewable energy, and then you just end up burning more fossil fuels. Um, so I think there's there's need to think holistically about how you decarbonize the system. And and I think just to add to to both the, the points that have been raised, I think uh, we need to also think about how we unlock the demand potential, which Tim was talking about earlier. I think what becomes really important is that uh, the, the, the greenest megawatt is the megawatt that isn't used. Um, and therefore, at times, making sure that we, we can manage those uh, that utilisation more effectively. And then also where we know that some of the the newer tech, the, the existing conventional generators, for a better word, they're now moving towards being hydrogen ready so that in the future that those generators will be able to run on a renewable gas um, derivative. And therefore, if that actually happens, it would be a very quick way to de decarbonize the economies very quickly because they would run and also the excess and oversupply of renewables could actually be utilized uh, during the, uh, the periods to create hydrogen and then it could be reconstituted back into generation when the um, when we actually have the Duncan Flouter situation. But it's an exciting time. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I would definitely agree with that as well. You know, I, I sort of said that the first thing I was taught years ago was one and a half kilowatts per home in the, in the LV now, but well, the second thing I was taught was the energy hierarchy and you don't use energy first, and that's the first lesson you learn. And I, I think that's a lesson we tend to forget uh, too often. I'd, I'd also just add one other point, which is you know, there's a lot of talk about grid battery, grid level battery storage at the moment, certainly in the UK. Um, I think we shouldn't forget the, the requirement and the need for more local distributed storage and, and networks which enable that as well, be it 
through electric vehicles and vehicle to grid type solutions or just batteries behind the meter in homes and uh, and businesses and properties around the country as well and, and that needs a shift in the way that local networks have operated and also the way that uh, companies like us actually can can uh, easily access uh, assets at that level behind the meter in particular can, can i come back uh, in and, and maybe direct a question probably to liam but the everything we're talking around with with batteries and hydrogen and uh, other other technologies are kind of add-ons to the grid to, to help with the system. But is there anything in terms of the equipment and the technology in the grid itself that really needs to, to shift? Um, and are there any best practices that you can see uh, around Europe or even in the US that you know, you're, you're considering uh, for yourself in Ireland? Yes, yeah, so, so, so I think there's, there's a few things we're looking at. We know uh, the social acceptance for overhead infrastructure is becoming more challenging to accept um, in all jurisdictions around the world. So therefore, we're looking at you know smart technologies uh, like cables uh, that can be used uh, more effectively, like superconductors and what can that actually bring. And we've seen solutions being deployed around the world into you know more niche markets at the moment but potentially that will will help us in in the future to allow more power to be moved more effectively we're also looking at uh, power flow devices to utilize our grid more effectively than than what we have been using it up until now um, and and also looking at dynamic line rating so that you know if we have a lot of renewables on the system and wind is blowing it's actually cooling the overhead lines so potentially you can get more power down through those lines so if you can actually get more data coming back and how you utilize that data more effectively works and of course you know that uh, we're always looking at you know how we can uh, bring on the likes of solar onto the system as well because that complements some of the technologies as well so uh, the other thing in in ireland that we're actually doing is we hold a kind of a, a trial qualification process where new technologies can come and uh, seek to connect onto the grid and therefore uh, it allows us to consider whether this could help us with some of the, the other solutions as well and we're also looking you know keenly looking at what's probably happening a little bit in new zealand at the moment where they're looking at um wi-fi power where they're looking at moving power without actually wires at all uh, and seeing some of the technologies evolving there to try and uh, evolve what we're our thinking around some of this as well so it's it's we're looking at pretty much everything on the system and once it reaches a level of maturity we're trying to quickly bring that onto the system to help with the intermittency and then there's also in the control room where we're we're evolving a lot of new tools and um, to help manage both the intermittency of renewables but also the now the less predictable demand proposition with more EVs connecting onto the system and people's behaviour about consuming electricity changing significantly as well. So trying to get that more uh, probabilistic solution around what power we need on the system. So we're looking pretty much at everything um, from the control room to down to the homes and we're, we're engaging heavily with the distribution system operator as well in Ireland to make sure that uh, it's a holistic end-to-end -end solution. And and the I think the implication for investors is actually there's a 
whole host of these system services that that AirGrid and, and others. So in, in Ireland, the, the DS3 system has been bringing in lots of battery storage technologies and, and new technologies in, in, in the UK. National Grid um, has been procuring synchronous compensators, which are uh, technologies that provide inertia to the system. So there's a whole host of, of challenges that a high renewable system creates for the operation of the grid. And that has created, um, I guess, contracts and revenue streams available for investment projects to help support the system operators. Yeah, it's, it's a completely different way of, of operating the system and the market proposition has to evolve where historically would have been the, uh, the energy market, which would have driven a lot of the investments. Now we're seeing that as the energy price tends to maybe towards zero as we get more and more renewables onto the system. The system services becomes uh, a more important uh, part of the investment portfolio. And our belief is that if we create the ecosystem or the right investment uh, proposition, that the right tech technologies will come delivered services that we actually need and uh, Felix you're 100% correct it's systems it's the fast frequency response inertia um, and and you know we're now trying to figure out the congestion management element of this as well which we believe batteries is probably some of the solution and, and investors are realizing this that at, at Aurora we, we are supporting um, developers in, in battery storage technology to to try to um, I guess, assess the, the total sets of revenues that you can add up in different system services. It, it, it varies from market to market, so it's very sort of jurisdiction kind of um, dependent. But in, in lots of these markets, it is building a business case, not just about the energy trading, you know, buying and selling of electricity with your battery storage, but also adding on top a sliver of frequency response revenues and by providing that service, adding on top a sliver of congestion management and using a battery for several different applications at you know not all at once you know at the same time but but um, shifting from one to the other over time maybe I'll, I'll jump in here as uh, maybe as the, the, the American uh, naysayer uh, obviously we are looking to a, a, a future uh, with uh, sort of with green power and looking what is the ideal energy mix for for the grid uh, but the recent challenges we've seen in Europe, uh, between a uh, under um, uh, production from renewables and gas prices being uh, high and, and creating challenges for for the grid, uh, have have uh, presented also its own issues. How do, how do we solve the, the, that near term problem? I mean, uh, hydrogen is still a, a, a few years away, carbon capture is still a few away, a few years away, and maybe this question for for Felix. Uh, what is the ideal mix for future future grid? And does nuclear play a role uh, in the in the US obviously we have a bit more interest in nuclear than than in parts of Europe and I'd love to hear your 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 answer on that one yeah yeah sure <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a big it's it's the big question right what what is the ideal mix and and i i don't think there's a there's a right answer i think there are lots of um, trade offs for for different mixes that require ultimately um, uh, political choices um, and, and the reason for that is, you know, in a sense, we, we've operated a, 
a successful system with with carbon based fuels for you know as for, for generations and and the onus right now is to decarbonize and and that is a political choice to decarbonize and and you know i'm i'm all for that but i guess part of the decarbonization is around that what other choices you want to make so in terms of ideal mix it you know decarbonization suggests um the, the the sort of easy steps of decarbonization is the wind and the solar i think in in terms of a uh, cost competitiveness at, at the moment those are the the key technologies i think the complementary parts what how do you integrate wind and solar what is the firm capacity um it really depends on the system that you're talking about and how much inherent flexibility you have so so in in a place like in in um so the Sc scandinavian countries where you do like norway you ha do have lots of lot of um hydro then that flexibility in the hydro can already complement a lot of the the wind and solar whereas in something like the uk where it's a it's an island nation with some interconnected connection but still a limitation of limit of connection ireland as well falls in that category then then you do have to think about um zero carbon generation that's that's um kind of like a a ccus gas with carbon capture or or nuclear or and and um hydrogen that we mentioned earlier so there is no single answer it really depends on the system and the system needs um but i think that that is the key question is how do you complement the easy parts the easy parts is solar and wind i think we're all going that way but we don't actually know how do you fit that in and and that remaining stuff is is different for every country i was going to say maybe we well, i can ask one sort of open question to all of you and then uh we have some questions that have come in and we can get onto those so yeah one of the things that i think investors are grappling with is the fact that you know, there's a, there's a lot of investment needed um you know, both along the grids and also in in the uh the upstream and the generation side and potentially in storage but when we look at grids where we've got a situation where potentially returns are are diminishing and, and regulators are are following a, a falling cost of capital and, and putting down the returns for for grid operators so uh, are we incentivizing people enough to make the changes required in europe um you know is there a danger that we we're coming up with all these very ambitious targets but actually not putting in the frameworks for uh, for companies and individuals to make the investments required and i don't mind who wants to jump in and and, and start on that one sorry i was just going to say that at the risk of uh, perhaps saying the obvious answer from a private uh, unregulated business you know a lot of the investment is not just going to come from the regulated sort of entities it's businesses like ours who are going to go and invest in you know uh, parts of the market where the, you know, the right market signals are there to support capital coming in alongside you know engineering expertise and, and new technology solutions to, to, to support it so I, I i get the question and i, I sort of understand it and, and it's probably true up to a point but i, I would sort of say that if, if we're relying on the regulated network or regulated sort of part of the, 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 the networks delivering this entire sort of net zero solution, then we'll, I think we're, we're going to be waiting a long time. We, we, we need to keep as we are, uh, encouraging and putting the right market mechanisms in place to enable um, capital to come from other sources outside of that regulated sort of sphere, if you like. Yeah, so, so I think grids are key towards um, decarbonization. And the current market designs for the grids actually haven't been 
been that supportive of such, right? So, so the current market, not not just the regulatory designs have been designed for a, a a whole generation of of centralized transmission connected generation, all mm. one way transmitted to to customers, and there needs to be a regulatory change to incentivize. Not just the transmission networks, but also the various distribution networks, all parts of the grid, to be more proactive and and be responsive. I mean, a lot of the, the the themes that we discussed today don't actually won't happen until there is regulatory change to get the incentives right from the grid's perspective to be that more dynamic and forward-looking. Yeah, I, I would add just to, to what my colleagues have actually said, um, and like the key great thing about uh, airgrid until you know is that we don't own the assets well we will own offshore assets in the future so therefore we are not uh, when we make decisions about investing in the grid we're, we're we're not bound by investing in overhead lines cables and station we're looking at well, what is the right solution to solve the technical challenge that we actually have in front of us and therefore it gives us a certain level of freedom that you know we, we look at what is the, the right solution around it and therefore historically we've always and we will continue is look at what is the right market solution to give the right investment signals so in ireland like a lot and, and a good part of the infrastructure um for third parties connecting onto the grid are built contestably so the third parties can build their own connection uh, onto the grid so they may be able to do that quicker and faster than the asset owner actually doing it um, which is which, which allows for more competition to actually come in to what we're actually trying to do and the other thing is that we're always open to finding better solutions around what we're actually looking at but the key point is that the market needs to evolve so that the investment signals remain strong for the investors to actually uh, be able to uh, see the the long-term proposition uh, to invest into the the, the worldwide markets that are, are now changing uh, as the energy market starts to become more volatile and over time starts to reduce in value. Great, thank you. At this point, we're going to uh, go to some of the, the, the questions coming in for the audience. As a reminder, if you do have a question, feel free to add them to the Q&A box uh, on, your, on your system. Uh, and maybe I'll start, Liam, with you on this, on this question. Uh, have you back-tested extreme weather events to see what maximum battery capacity is needed? And, and how does the cost of this compare to alternatives, i.e. more gas or, not in your case, nuclear, but more gas? Yeah, no, so, so what we've actually looked at, if we've, we've looked at, and we're, we will be publishing uh, Shaping Our Electricity Future in Ireland, which kind of sets the, um, the vision for the, the next kind of 10 years or so in, in the Irish transmission system. So we've looked at what is the, probably the, 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 re, the best mix for uh, both batteries and conventional generation. Because at the moment, what we're seeing in the, in the marketplace is that, you know, you actually have the, the four hour batteries are, are starting to come onto the market. Six hours are not probably there yet uh, being, being brought onto the system. But, um, and therefore, once you start to look at about six and 12 hours, they start to now start to display some of the OCGTs that you actually have required on the system to run it. 
and we've seen batteries being really effective and being really important for giving us the inertia service or giving us the um, fast frequency response. Uh, but it's the longer term ones that we're now actually starting to look at as we're starting to get the higher percentage of renewable penetration. So uh, we haven't, you know, in relation to the costs that we're, we're still working our way through the, the cost differential around those. And that keeps changing based on the technology you look at and also the evolving uh, portfolios, both from the gas and the, the battery side of the house. And I'll come in. There's a couple of questions here, which I can probably uh, sort of join up. So um, maybe directed at you, Tim. Firstly, what are the the various revenue streams for grid-scale batteries uh, in the UK. Um, how far are we along in terms of the evolution of contractual and commercial arrangements for storage assets in the light of this changing market? So I, I guess that's really just trying to break down what's available as a, as a battery owner. Yeah, well, well, so the view we've taken on, on, on it is that you know, when, when putting together, if you like, financial forecast models, that over 95% of the revenues will come from the very well-established balancing mechanism, you know, national grid and, and the day ahead and intraday sort of energy market for provision of essentially balancing services uh, to, to the networks and to suppliers. Now, um, clearly, what we'll also what we'll also be able to do for batteries is provide those fast frequency response type services and, and things like dynamic containment that's coming in the UK over the last 12, 18 months. Uh, to provide different types of services to the grid and, and to the local DNOs as well, um, and we will access those services where there is the you know the, the market signal and the, the need to do so, and that you know it, and frankly it's value creative to do so, and from a sort of long-term asset um, management perspective. But I, I think when you look at take a long-term view on it, really, um, you know the majority of revenues and the majority of services will really be around. Uh, that sort of balancing mechanism and, and sort of day ahead sort of an on-day energy market, albeit we will be able to and will be accessing and providing those sort of fast frequency response services uh, as well, um, you know, as and when uh, they're needed, really. Sorry, just in terms of the contractual frameworks, you know, though, that those services are very well established, whilst new ancillary services have been you know, and, and there will be further ancillary services that become available from the market in terms of and that batteries are able to provide, particularly around sort of frequency response and, uh, and uh, capacity call-off. Um, really, those are very well-established markets. So I, I think what's still to come is really more established long-term offtake type contracts for, uh, for battery storage. Uh, driven by suppliers needing to effectively hedge the input of, of intermittent generation into the grid. Um, and, and, and that is yet to come, I think, in, in meaningful terms, but I think it will come. Great. Thanks, uh, Tim. And to talking about actually the uh, more the long duration uh, battery, uh, we do have a question, Felix, uh, for you. Uh, what about uh, liquid air storage systems like the, uh, the crowd battery? Uh, here in the UK, uh, and other electrochemical storage like iron air, which the uh, the uh, audience member understands can go on for up to six days. Um, and this a very long question, so if you just bear with me, isn't the point that we need a lot of different storage solutions to work together and solve diff different problems? If so, how would the economics of each of these storage systems work? Uh, and I'll probably leave the rest to as a follow-up. Okay, great. Um, yes, so so I, I think there are um, that there is potential for 
different technologies like like liquid air, compressed air, or, or different you know longer duration storage, um, if not for dominance of lithium ion. I think that the challenge here is the lithium ion has has taken through the the sort of most valuable um, the most valuable applications. It's sort of peak shaving, lopping off the the highest price point and the lowest lowest price points, and and using those and and in a sense, um, the, all the system services as well has has taken um, been taken over by lithium-ion technology. So, the market systems, the, the the market design needs to be different in order to incentivize what we do need in the system is longer duration storage. So, I think that it, um, using the UK as an example, um, the capacity market doesn't actually give you that much more credit beyond four hour of of duration and um you could argue that that's not the right signal right like i think i think especially with our our there was a question about sort of extreme weather situations earlier um if you test you know those extreme weather situations you actually do need the longer duration and the current market signals don't isn't there for longer duration that that's so in a sense we think there's a a bit of a market failure or a missing market for long duration zero carbon something so um a, a lot of the policy um direction is towards something so so it's not it's it, it's it's not a gap i mean or rather it is a gap in the current current market signals but it is something that the policymakers in in the uk and across europe are actively looking towards what is the right policy market signal to incentivize those longer durations and that that creates a market for the likes of liquid air and others that cannot that won't be directly competing against lithium ion so that's really the, the the gap is you know two hour four hour whatever it is it's it's not the same it's not the same utility for for the system as a eight hour 12 hour kind of storage so let's have different price signals to incentivize the the longer duration storage. I guess one yeah, of the, I, I the think challenges. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go no, ahead. I, I think one of the ways we're looking at it in an Irish context is looking at it from a a ramping product. So you're actually having a maybe a 12 to something from a, a four to 12 hour ramping product, and then a longer ramping product, so that you know that the technology can provide the services over that period in time. And uh, whether that's multiple batteries or multiple different technologies being stacked in a certain way, that it'll it's it's sending out the investment signal so that it allows innovation to happen to come up with the right solutions rather than we've been very prescriptive about this is the technology we need is creating the ecosystem and the environment so that innovation comes forward and puts maybe a number of different technologies together to solve some of the challenges that we actually have. And and we're also like some of that may be the aggregation of uh, the, the domestic sector, uh, both the demand side, the potential um, you know, battery storages at the micro level, all of that coming to play and that we're fully unlocking the potential that we actually have and looking at that opportunity and how do we make sure that that is maximized to the benefit of of, of the the energy citizen as well. 
and maybe just following up on on that part of the same same question here. One of you uh, pointed out earlier that the, the lithium ion also has benefited from the tra the, the transportation industry, uh, where we've seen a, a a very large deployment of battery solutions uh, specific to that industry. What is missing for the other uh, uh, technologies, the long duration? What is that that element that's going to get a, a faster learning curve that's going to allow the uh, those those technologies to benefit from a, a, a declining cost curve and therefore a better adoption rate, in your opinion? I'll throw out to any of you who wants to try that. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the, the easy response to that is is getting deployment up. And the more the more you deploy, the, the lower the costs. Um, I think the challenging Part of that is is actually there. Um, you need you need a a concerted effort, not just in a particular country, but sort of globally about what is the long duration storage that we need to to increase that deployment. And and unlike say lithium ion, where where there is the EV sector to to really coalesce the thinking, the research on one technology. I, I don't see the obvious parallel for long duration storage. There are lots of competing technologies. And, and as I mentioned, every country has a slightly different need. So every country has, might, might you know, one, one country might choose, choose um, liquid air. Another country might choose pump storage because pump storage is particularly suited for that country. Um, so, so I'm afraid I, I don't see an obvious solution towards that large scale for long duration. One of the other questions we've got is around interconnectors. Um, you know, if there isn't, necessarily one solution on technology for each country do interconnectors have a role to try and amalgamate say the european system yeah to answer your question john yes they they, they do and i think what we need to look at is how do we more flexibly operate the interconnectors um you know almost look at them as, as real time where we start to give the opportunities for trading to actually happen closer to, to real time with respect to the interconnectors and how do we allow the, uh, the, the, the global solution for security supply to be managed in a, in a, in a European or a, um, a kind of from a European context. It's not just in, in one region that there will be limitations like where, you know, if you look at Ireland or RGB, that the amount of interconnection you would need to cover all the requirements. If we had a Duncan flouter, then it would be a huge amount of interconnection you would need to build. But there's there's also the item of, of virtual interconnection, which I think some of the, the large uh, energy users are now thinking about, where if you don't actually have a high renewable output in a certain region, that they potentially could move some of their demand from that region to a region where there is high output in renewables. So you almost have a, a virtual interconnector and interconnectors working very closely together. I think that's part of the solution. And I think part of the solution is everything we talked about today and having that, that right mix of generation um, to, to have a secure power system into the future as we do the transition. And, and that will change as we get more interconnection and we get other items connecting in. Interconnectors certainly help. But I guess my caveat there is don't double count interconnectors. 
because what I'm worried about is, let's say, Ireland is reliant on the Great Britain, Great Britain, Great GB yeah. interconnection, and vice versa. GB is like, oh, I've got the Irish interconnectors, and then you end up both both countries needing power at the same time and double counting that that reliability. So watch out for that. And, and we've been doing some some work around that just in relation to um, kind of weather modeling. And we're doing some we're doing some further work with some of the research organisations in Ireland, uh, and we're looking at weather fronts coming in over Ireland potentially could cover GB, as as you said, Felix, and then also some of them may be covering some of France as well. So in essence, it's going: how much do we need when that actually happens? Um, and I think the the North Seas projects over time will help in relation to that, where we'll have different ways of interconnecting. Uh, all the uh, all of Europe around, but that's a good number of years away. So in the short term, we we've definitely challenges that we need to address, and in the longer term, there may be other solutions we, which I think will emerge as we start to have more and more offshore and having that offshore grid starting to connect a lot more effectively. Tim, a question you did bring up during your your comments: um, the uh, EV to grid solution. Uh, that that is is out there. Um, longer term, what role do you really expect? Um, uh, I guess E to V uh, to to uh, sorry E to G to play, or V to G sorry V to G to play. But more short and also short term, how do you overcome some of the challenges, uh, just technical challenges of even like warranties of the car? Um, whether the the automotive industry would be willing to to see their car as being contributed a resource to the the grid, I, I don't think vehicles are grid in the short term will play a huge huge role. In, in the longer term, you know, I was referring to some of those national grid forecasts or requirements for grid battery storage earlier. That there's a forecast for 12 gigawatts of requirement of sort of storage deep in the in the network, which vehicle to grid could could pay a, a part of. I, I think really. It's going to take a little while for consumers and manufacturers to actually get comfortable with what you know, what what people do with cars that are on their drives or outside the homes. You know, the, the, we're all very used to, to, to you, you wanting to be able to get into a car and to, to drive it to a certain place. So people are going to want their cars full of energy and be uncomfortable. I think with the thought of well, I'm going to get in it and has somebody used it to, to support the grid overnight and and, and so on. So I, I think. All of those things will come, but I don't see vehicle to grid in the near term really providing a meaningful sort of contribution to the sort of challenges that we're talking about, albeit over a longer period of time, I think it, it will. Um, and I, equally, I actually think, you know, other types of local storage rather than just vehicle vehicles, you know, more fixed storage, so behind the meter, some battery storage solutions is going to be an important part of the mix as well. But, but I, I would just probably caution a little bit is that as we're rolling out the electric vehicles, we probably need to think about the, the smart charging technology just being put in. So in essence, rather than we having to go back and do a huge retrofit into the future, that if there's some of that technology there, that maybe with a little bit extra investment at this early point, you potentially could have a future that unlocks that potential. Uh, where we're, we're seeing maybe in some of the technologies that that early intervention and the early thought process can uh, allow us to actually have to have more flexibility into the future. So I would I would agree in, with, with with Tim in relation to short term, but we may need to think about how we would uh, future proof for the future. Yeah, the, the, you know, there's there quite a bit of noise not so long ago in the UK about. Um, 
that you know the network seeking to to affect some control over how and when people might be able to charge vehicles <laughs> be like oh god some, someone's going to actually be able to turn off my charger at home well frankly that that type of proportional load control or the ability to turn up or turn down probably more than turn off ev charges is frankly just a basic requirement of how we're going to manage networks in the future the alternative to that is networks flying and which is in no one's interest so whilst the, the, there's a bit of noise around that frankly it's got to happen and, and as you said Liam, i think it's better getting that sort of requirement specified and out there now rather than waiting for you know 20 years time it's going to be much harder to, to affect and potentially the, the consumer won't be affected at all because um, you can think about about um, things like smartphones with, with the latest iPhones. You, you plug in at night, it, it predicts when you're going to wake up. It keeps the charge at a sort of relatively low rate overnight. And then as soon as, no, an hour before you wake up, it goes to full. As long as the, cus the customer opens their, their phone, it's fully charged in the morning. That's what they care about. So likewise, you can imagine the, the technology to be completely automated. So you set, you know, when do we want to go to work in the morning, you now 7 a.m., whatever, and then overnight it could charge or not charge throughout the evening as long as it, it's fully charged in the morning. Then the consumer doesn't need to know, and, and um, you can still get all those benefits. Yeah, and so you use the word automation. I think automation and all of this is key because despite being someone who's very, very immersed in the energy industry, I do not want to be thinking about this every time I plug my car in or plug my phone in or do any of these things. <laughs> we have to have automation in the system because I just don't think consumers are, are that interested in wanting to worry about it. We're all used to just energy being there uh, when we want it. And, and, as, and as a grid operator, that flexibility, like most grid operators around the world will be willing to pay for that service so that you know you actually have that flexibility. Um, and you know, as a consumer, you're actually looking at, well, here's a service I'm providing to help decarbonize uh, society and, and, we, and protect the environment. And at the same time, I, my electricity bill or my energy bill is going to be reduced. So there is a win-win here that uh, if we unlock successfully, that we potentially uh, could make our, our decarbonization a lot more uh, easier. Or more straightforward rather than easier easier is it's, it's relative yeah and, and you know our experience of smart metering has been actually uh, getting people interested in that it's not just you know saying you're going to make a saving great okay but actually using that carbonization agenda as the hooks the more emotional sort of appeal to people is actually works better frankly yeah probably um time for me to, to wrap up the session here thank you i think we are uh, pretty much against time so uh, i guess firstly thank you to everyone who, who uh, joined the session and asked questions but uh, more importantly thanks to uh, the three panelists today for your for your insights um please do look out for the the next uh, installment of the uh, the navigating the energy transition series hosted by rbc which will come in december and we're going to go on a two-monthly cadence from, from here on in. But uh, again, thanks for your time today, guys. Uh, very informative. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been an RBC Capital Markets production. To hear more from RBC Capital Markets, you can subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Amazon. Or visit our website, rbccm.com. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation and no recommendations are implied. 
it is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.